Hello, I know it's been a while. Sorry, it's Amy Rosenberg with Street Talk, a podcast about the real estate market in Portland, produced by Veracity, a non well, we're not a nonprofit. We represent a lot of nonprofits, but we're a marketing firm, but we specialize in real estate marketing. So I know it's been a while. I um yeah. <laughs> so I have two podcasts. The other one I have is for it's called PR Talk. And we, I talked to a bunch of reporters and I recently went up to Seattle um, and I interviewed Roger Valdez with um, Seattle for Growth. That's a nonprofit that advocates for more housing options in the Seattle area. And so, but he also writes for Forbes. So that's why I interviewed him for PR Talk because I want to hear about that column and also about how he works with reporters. But then I, you know, we did talk a lot about the housing market. So of course, because that's what he does with Seattle for Growth. So I'm posting it on this podcast as well. So you can hear because he does talk a little bit about Portland, but then, you know, whatever the big cities do around us, um, Portland can learn from. And it's just kind of interesting for real estate junkies to listen to this because he talks about it in a PR sense of, like how the reporters and how they write in the media can actually affect our um, mindset, you know, as buyers and sellers in the real estate market. So if our um, mindset is positive, we might be buying more houses, but then if it's negative, then of course maybe we wouldn't be buying more houses. And he says the media has a huge role to play in our mindset. And that essentially affects um, not only the real estate market, but it can affect legislation and policy. And so Roger in Seattle works to help advocate for more housing of all kinds, whether that is owner occupied, tenant occupied, whether they're mansions or micro housing. And so he talks about how the more options we have in the real estate market, the better it is for everybody because then you can make choices um, rather than settling for less options in the market. Hopefully you like this. Well, thank you for joining me. So how do I pronounce your last name? Valdez. Roger Valdez. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so you are the executive director? I'm the director of Smart Growth Seattle. Okay. So we're a, a nonprofit 501c4 organization that is an advocacy organization for more housing and more growth in the city of Seattle. Okay. And how long has that been around? We started uh, Smart Growth Seattle five years ago. Um, it began as a kind of a part-time, you know, sort of a website blog, and I did advocacy um, uh, work with the city council around small lot development. So. This was um, an issue that came up in Seattle around these sort of his, what they call historic tax parcels. It was these little um, pieces of land in single-family zones that were smaller lots, and but they could be built on, and the code allowed that to happen. And so that was proliferating in 2010 as the economy came back in 9, 10, 11. A lot of people subdivided their lots and were building additional you know, single-family housing on smaller lots. Mm-hmm. And the council, the city council, decided they wanted to stop that. So we were originally formed sort of to work on that issue, but we to created, keep that to keep that to going to allow that basically. to continue, right? Okay. And but we left it flexible enough so that it was a broadly pro-growth management organization, but also pro-market organization. So um, push the growth into the urban growth area, you know, which is cities but also allow a lot of production of housing in those cities to meet the increasing demand. And is that what you mean by pro-market? Yeah, I mean, I think by pro-market it means there's a lot of different levels to that phrase for me. Um, Some of it is, you know, characterized as libertarianism, but that's not what I am or what we do. What we're saying is the market can solve a lot of the affordability problems. When, When I say market, I mean you have buyers and sellers, Mm-hmm. And they're all out there making decisions every day. And if we get out of their way so that they can get together, um, then prices 
you know, not an issue. They will set the price. They will set, the market does set the price. And mm -hmm. uh, contrary to what I think popular wisdom is, which is that the seller sets the price, which is, is logical. It's, it's not a, a, an insane or crazy or stupid idea to think, well, who sets the price on a transaction? The seller, right? Because I get to decide what the selling price is. But it's really the multiple decisions that are made by buyers and sellers a thousand, a million times a day in a market that, that ends up setting that price. Well, yeah. I mean, so from my days in selling real estate, I remember I shadowed somebody at Windermere Real Estate when I was first starting and we were doing a listing and it was a huge conversation I launched into on how do we, meaning this realtor and I, decide the price. Mm -hmm. And he's flat out said the market sets the price. And what that means is that sure, the seller can think that they have the power and what the price is, but if they overprice it, they will, the market will correct it. Right. Nobody will buy the house right. or on the opposite side, if they underprice it, um, then the market corrects it by offering more. Mm -hmm. And, and I've but and kind of, if we're just going to go deep into real estate, which I could talk about all day is now in Portland, that's where I'm from. Um, realtors are low-balling prices on purpose, mm -hmm. meaning, of course, they have their buy-in um, with the seller, but when they're setting the price, they're listing the price, they're not setting it. It's for a lower amount so that they can increase offers and increase, like, mm -hmm. drum up more sales. Right. Are right. you finding that in Seattle as well? You know, it, that's a really good question. Um, I am actually just in the process of applying for a loan because I've never owned a home, and so I'm I'm thinking of doing that, and so I'm getting a lot of, uh, you know, I'm getting, I have a friend who is sending me a lot of, um, you know, look at this, you know, the, this mm -hmm. is what it is. I don't know, but I, I do know that the average, people are citing the median or average price at around six to 700,000, and I'm seeing a lot of things less than that. Um, In Seattle? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So I think... I don't know what is happening on the, you know, in the trenches in the real estate world as far as single family or, or um, condominiums or whatever, but I do know that it is a very hot market and people are aggressive with the, you know, in terms of sell selling, aggressive in their efforts to get prices to come down. And so it's just, it's just sort of a, a battle out there between buyers and sellers to try and get into the product. Um, yeah, and I think you on Forbes, because I want to talk to you about what you do mm -hmm. on Forbes, but I think you did an article on that the median, is it the median or the, yeah, the median? I'm not, I mean, whatever, price is not what you want to look at because that's right. just not really representative of the whole market. Is that yeah, and, the, and this thing that you, know, you were talking about kind of when you talk about price, there's a kind of a magic to it where... You know, there's this this sort of um, uh, you know reality that that is created with price when prices um, kind of manifest out of all these decisions and things that are happening in the market. Um, you know, pe between people and decisions being made on what they'll buy and what they'll sell and why and why not and what the utility is and all that. Um, once that price is kind of created. Um, it has a powerful effect on people's decisions. So if things start to get too expensive and they start going in other directions, other people start making other decisions. And the problem with an average is that an average doesn't tell you a very good story. I mean, I, I use the example of a run that I did one time where I did um, five miles in 40 minutes. So that's an eight-minute mile for four miles, right? Mm -hmm. But the the truth of it is I started much faster. I was mm -hmm. running, you know, like seven and a half or whatever. And then in the last mile, my knee started bothering me. And so I slowed way down. And I think I did the last mile in 10 minutes or mm -hmm. nine and a half minutes or something. And so if you, if you look at every single average is that, that's a, that, that's sort of an average. It's, it doesn't tell you very much. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we're finding in, in, um, in amongst policymakers and the way people talk about real estate prices or prices for housing or wages or whatever is they're taking average housing prices and average wages and then looking at the gap between those two and saying that is the measure of our so-called crisis. In other words, 
the average two-bedroom home in Seattle is $750,000. The average wage of a medical assistant is, you know, $20 an hour. And though that the medical assistants can't afford to live in Seattle. And it's mm-hmm. just like, that's just false. I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of medical assistants that live in Seattle. Um, so that abuse of averages and means can end up being the same way. I mean, that's I'm sorry, right. I, I, get means, medians. I get confused between Me- the two. Median is sort of the price that is in the middle of everything above it and everything below it. A mean is the average. And mm-hmm. so people do get confused between those two and the numbers get thrown around and it's sort of like, you know, especially in the media, well, yeah, it gets reported as, oh my God, the average price of a new home in Seattle is X hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so the, the normal human being looks at that and says, man, that's a lot of money, right? And and then they it, it's confirmation of their own bias about what's happening in the market. I look at it and go, well, that means there's not enough supply, right? But the a lot of people, the majority of people look at it and say, well, there you go. See, I'm priced we, out. Yeah, all Amazon is causing you know prices to skyrocket. So you know that's that's our real problem with with the way we talk about this in Seattle anyway. So yeah, I mean, how much do you think the press can actually influence our view on housing? Um, that's a really good question because I've been fighting with editors at the Seattle Times for years now, um, but it's pretty intense <laughs> right now. I think that they can, I'll put it this way, they, they have a tremendous amount of influence, but the easiest thing they, they can do is confirm people's existing bias. So, so if people think that prices are skyrocketing, and you know, Mike Rosenberg at the Seattle Times writes a story about, you know, the average price of the single family home in Seattle is $750,000. Um, people read that and they go, uh-huh, see? And that just that just confirms their bias. Mm-hmm. And what's frustrating about the editors at the Times is that I, I say, guys, nobody reads your paper. Okay, they read the headlines and they post to social media. Yeah. So if your headline says Amazon, uh, Amazon's growth linked to higher rents, right? Mm-hmm. The average individual or a person out there is going to go, well, Amazon is causing rents to go up, mm-hmm. and that's just absolutely false mm-hmm. and then I, I'll, I'll challenge the editors at the times on that and they'll say well read the story isn't it factual and well, I'm, you're I'm like going, I read the story right, but other people right. don't right and I'm saying yeah buried down in the fifth paragraph is something you know, language like because of the number of new jobs created and new people coming to town and not enough housing available Prices are going up, right? But that's way, way down there. And and I've tried to explain to them that, um, you know, the last time I wrote a headline, I was at the high school newspaper, but, you know, for, for a newspaper, but... Not necessarily. Th- but th- Well, but this this really matters. And, mm-hmm. and they just wave their hand, oh, it's just a headline. And I've even gotten after them about the pictures that they post. Um, there was a very heartfelt... Uh, editorial written by an African-American woman talking about how she was parked in front of this white woman's house and the white woman parked her SUV like all askew and, and got out and said, we don't, you get need to get out of here. You know, we don't need you people parking in front of our house or whatever. And the, and the African-American woman drove off and cried and just felt terrible. And then she said, you know, I feel like that was a racist thing. <clears throat> and she mentioned the changing demographics of the neighborhood. Well, the, the Seattle Times put slapped a big picture above a head, this headline that said, you know, changing neighborhood causes something great. I don't remember what the headline was exactly, but the picture was a brand new townhouse. And I, I wrote him and I said, guys, look, you can't keep doing this. And their response was, well, it's just a picture, you know, and so they don't get it. Um, and, and I think... I mean, I think they do, but they're stubborn and proud and persistent, and they refuse to um, take the criticism. And the criticism that I give them is not write the story that I want, but my criticism is um, when it comes to price, dig into what the dynamic is. Don't cite an average house number and then an average wage number. Go into what's the average price for two bedrooms, one bedroom, studio, old, new, new. 
um, one part of the city, another part of the city? The answer is going to be, for some individuals, if you're making $15 an hour, you're not going to be able to buy a house in Seattle, period. There's no argument there. No, Everybody would say, we agree. But the question of, can you afford to live in the city of Seattle, that's an entirely different discussion. And so the Seattle Times just kind of bangs this drum of, um, it's not affordable. It's a crisis. It's a crisis. It's a crisis. <laughs> and I kind of ask them the, the, the very deflating question, which is, when did the crisis start? And nobody has an answer because it's a it's a bogus term. There isn't. There's no crisis. It's just some prices are going up. Uh, some prices are going up faster than others. Some prices are kind of sitting steady. Some prices have gone down. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the, uh, where you are in the building. And you can get deals out there on housing and whether it's a rental. So the, the question is, how can we better utilize data to talk about the issues of price? How do we understand price and how do we understand the market so that we can better um, figure this out? Mm -hmm. And I think that's been, for me, the big challenge is um, we talk about it so poorly that it tends to perpetuate the problem with bad policy. And mm -hmm. so we don't get policy that actually addresses what the fundamental issue is, which is we don't have enough supply. We don't have enough inventory. Yeah, so what is um, Smart Growth Seattle's, you know, kind of main issue that you're working on right now? when you're And you're trying to kind of move policy in a specific direction. Yeah, we're so we're, I, I in, a, in a way, we're kind of a, a we're sort of a, an advocacy organization, so we're, we advocate for housing in, a, in the broadest possible way. So everything from high-level policies like mandatory inclusionary zoning that's, that they're trying to do, rent control, um, broader policies affecting tenant-landlord uh, relations um, or you know leases and property management, um, all the way down to nuts and bolts, things like how why is it taking so long for this project to get its permit. So we do what I consider to be policy, advocacy, and advocacy within the bureaucracy to help shake loose, you know, sticky permitting issues. Um, and, and just to dumb it down for mm -hmm. myself, because I need that sometimes. So because you're about creating more housing, right. that's your deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so whatever you can do, whether that's speeding up development or, and how does, um, and I guess the tenant-landlord relations mm -hmm. comes in because that is housing as mm -hmm. well. So mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be owner-occupied housing that you're creating. Right. We're, we're about, the way I put it is we're, we want to create more housing of all kinds in all neighborhoods for all levels of income. So micro-housing, single-family homes, you know, someone wants to build a mansion in the city somewhere, great. If you want to build um, apartments, townhouses, single-family a proliferation of product and product type enables um, the consumer to make better, better and more um, useful choices for themselves. And if the, if the product type, location, and quantity are limited, competition increases, choice is limited, and prices go up. And so that's really our philosophy is, you know, more is better um, no one's going to get hurt by someone building a house, and 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 someone will say, "Oh, well, maybe." <laughs> well, the, there's the argument of displacement and gentrification. Again, there isn't a single source of data that is reliable and uh, is predictive about either of those things. People call it talk about displacement, and you say, "Well, what is displacement?" And people say, "Oh, come on, you know what I." And I go, no, I don't. Tell me. And they'll say, well, it's when a person moves because they don't want to move. And, and, and I say, and then they quickly follow up and say, because of economic reasons. And I'm, I say, well, okay, well, how many people have been displaced in Seattle for that reason? Nobody knows because the data is never collected that way. The fact that an individual of a certain race and age and, and economic, uh, you know, income you know, moved out of a unit somewhere, and then we don't know where that person went. We don't know why they left. We don't know if they won the lottery and moved to Tahiti. We don't know if their partner died and they, you know, they went bankrupt. 
We have no idea. But something is indeed happening, right? It's I called mean... change. And so the, the thing about people is that they're, they're peculiar in that they don't want change. They want stability. So there's a pl point at which if you have a neighborhood of 100 people and 90 of them are African-American, five are Asian, and five are white, and you kind of rub your eyes and come back, you know, and open them, and now there's 45 African-Americans and 30 white people and some other yeah, ethnic groups. People say, that's gentrification. And you go, but why? Well, there used to be that many black people there. Now there's less. Okay, tell me why that's bad. Well, because and, the, and it just gets really muddy after that. Um, is there institutional racism? Absolutely. Is there a disproportionate number of people that are poor that are black or people of color? Of course, we've seen that. That's real. But the notion that, that somehow the racial and ethnic mix or demographic mix of a particular neighborhood should remain the same over time is absurd. It's, it's ludicrous. I mean, we would never accept that. We would never accept the policy implications of that. Which are essentially, which is essentially redlining, saying every time a white person moves into a neighborhood, they have to bring a black person with them. It's sort of like, huh? Makes mm -hmm. no sense. And and people don't want that. But I understand that what they're concerned about is change that is destabilizing the status quo, and that can create real disutility in people's lives. But what's the solution to that? More housing. Um, and, and what we've actually seen in Seattle is, if you look at predominantly African-American neighborhoods, it's true that the ratio of white to black people in those neighborhoods has changed in favor of white people. But there are neighborhoods, so in the Rainier Valley, for example, but in Lake City, there are now, it's reversed. There, there's been a change in the ratio of African-Americans to white people in that neighborhood. There's more... But how far away is Lake City from the city center? It's probably about the same as Rainier Valley. Okay. Um, Delridge, the same way. So, now, am I suggesting that people left the Rainier Valley and moved to Lake City? I don't know that. But what I'm saying is, is that overall, the city of Seattle has become less white over the last decade. It's continuing to become less white, meaning there are more people of color here now than there were yesterday and will be more tomorrow. And we can deal with this, but the, the, the way to do it is not to constrain housing supply in the name of helping people of color that are poor. That's just insane. That all that does is create more scarcity, more competition, and those with fewer dollars fighting with people with more dollars for something that is scarce. The poor people always lose. And so we've been you know, that this is an issue that is extremely controversial and very difficult. And unfortunately, our politicians in Seattle don't want to talk about it. The media doesn't want to talk about it, except in terms of who's winning and who's losing. And they always use averages and they always use, well, there used to be this many of these kinds of people over here and now there's not. So there's a problem. And then it, that just the, the conversation just kind of fades off into a bunch of shouting and yelling about different things and we and there's no um, nobody offers an answer to that problem other than things that are going to constrain housing supply like rent control and um, taxes on housing and um, you know racial ethnic programming in neighborhoods and saying well nobody that you know that people have to stay in their neighborhood and, and that's our that's how we measure success so anyway it's a it's an intensely controversial and difficult uh, subject and difficult time for the housing conversation because of these issues. And again, we're, we use kind of garbage language and data to talk about it, and that just makes it worse. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say on behalf of the Seattle Times and any reporter is just, <laughs> just remember that they are busy. That's the only mm. thing. So when you... And I sometimes we just have to remember that when we don't like a photo that they show, they're just pulling. Whatever. Oh, I know. And I told them I, when I wrote this, I said, you know, I am probably hypersensitive to this because of what I do. So like the average person, and I'm using the word average now too in the colloquial mm -hmm. way, um, but you know, 
a person looks at something and they move on. I look at it and I think of all the different implications that it might have down the road cumulatively, and I, and I become disproportionately probably outraged by it. And I think their response is, is like you said, you know, we take file pictures, we, like just like anybody does, you grab them and put them in. Um, I, one thing that I'm, I, you know, David Croman from Crosscut wrote a great story yesterday about um, Councilmember Sawant's proposal about uh, charging, you know, uh, a huge like five thousand dollar fee for anybody that that raises rents above ten percent, and it was good journalism because he actually asked a bunch of questions about well then what then what he went to someone in Portland where this rule was passed, which is you have to pay anything above ten percent in a year you have to pay for the person's relocation, right? Oh, uh-huh. And the person in Portland said, well, everyone raises their rent 9.9% every year. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what are you going to do? So you guaranteed a 9.9% increase in rent all over town. Mm-hmm. And do you know what, what rent went up here? 5%. Mm-hmm. So, again, you know, you kind of go, and so David's, David's journalism, David David's not a landlord, he's not in my pocket, he doesn't do what I tell him what to do. The, the, the article looked at kind of, huh, so it's 10%. Let me call a city where there's this has actually happened and talk to someone that knows the industry that's an actual landlord. What happened? Well, this is what happened. And then he put that in the story, and then he said, well, you know, we'll see what happens next. The, you know, and, and that that isn't... Um, I was going to say that isn't that hard to do. That's the hard work of journalism. That's, that's actually you know, real journalism. That's, that's reporting, right? That's like yeah. And the Seattle Times will write a story where it's like, mm-hmm. uh, wants proposing this thing. Here's what it would do. Let's talk to a lady who got booted out of her apartment because her rent up went fifteen percent. She would be covered by this. What would she do with the money? And then and then that's it. And then that would be the story. And everybody would say, yeah, like sock it to those landlords. And at least at least Croman's story. Kind of, whether you're for or against it, you look at that and go, geez, that's true. 10% over a year, and if rents are only going up 5%, well, that's kind of dumb. Like Now, someone will just lower the charges. She'll say, you can't raise your rent and if it, you know, 4%, because you know, mm-hmm. she's insane, and she wants rent control. And so, but you know, most rational people are going to go, why would we... Why would we limit an increase to something that is higher than what the increase is already at? And is this maybe not a good idea? So, you know, it, it is, I, I respect journalists, and as I always tell people, if you write something that's horrible, I'll tell you directly, that was horrible. Mm-hmm. If you write something that's really good, I'll tell you, that was really good. Mm-hmm. And it's usually not because, um, I look at it and think it was favorable to me or not favorable. I look at it and think, did this help the discussion? Does it? Ha- can I use it? Can I post it and say, read what this guy just wrote? Or is it something that's just like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. read what this guy wrote. Isn't this ridiculous? Mm-hmm. Like, it, to me, it's um, journalism is not an easy job. Um, but I think that, and, you know, you're talking about PR and about public relations and communications work. And I... Um, I think I take an unorthodox approach to it. Um, you mean to representing yourself or your your company, or what do you mean? Well, in terms of, um, I, I take a more direct approach to the newspapers and to the media outlets in that I, I think I deal with them directly and honestly and say, here's why I think the flaws were in that story. Um, I think most PR people would say, oh, don't do that. You, you want to keep these people happy. Mm-hmm. Don't. Um, but I look at uh, journalists and elected officials uh, and anybody that's sort of dealing in that kind of public sphere as having a tremendous responsibility. And I think they're grown-ups and they can take it. You know, I think that um, there was one guy who wrote a story about a bike lane that got obliter- that obliterated some you know elderly lady's loading zone that her her um, nursing home. And, you know, this guy named Mike Lindblom, again at the Seattle Times, 
So Mike wrote this story, and there's the picture of the old lady in her rain dress and her walker, like in her rain jacket. And now she has to walk to the end of the block, and she might get hit by a bus for a bike lane, right? And I'm like, I'm like, oh, for crying out loud! And so um, I kind of jokingly made fun of the picture, and I, th I think I used the, um, I think I did it on Twitter. And I used the grumpy cat thing of like, you know, this bitless lady's loading zone's gone and then the grumpy cat saying, good. <laughs> and I got, someone got mad at me. From the trying, Times? No, or? that's what's so funny. Someone got mad at me uh, saying, Mike Lindblom's a good person. He doesn't deserve this kind of crap. And, and then Lindblom like joked back at me on Twitter. Yeah, I mean. Because Lindblom's going... I'm not gonna like. Yeah, I get it. I, you know, Roger's point is that we're stoking the anti-bike fervor because here we go again. Some little old lady is getting you know run down by a bunch of guys in spandex and whatever. <laughs> and, and so he gets it, and he knows, and the editors know, and they get it. They they know. And but I think that hearing that criticism um, makes them think twice. I think it makes them stop and go. Uh, is this going to come across like another bikes versus old lady story or can we, you know, and I, and I think that there's, I think that it's, I think the journalists will tell you it's helpful to hear back from people who are doing the work, even if it's negative, because they signed up for that. They, they know that they're writing and a lot of people, they get, they get hate mail, they get people calling, you're an idiot, you know? So I think when professionals in the business and communications work, tell a reporter, I think that story was really bad, and here's why. Doesn't I don't think it offends them, and I don't think that it means they're less likely to um, cover you if they're a journalist in a big daily. I mean, um, I would say that the stranger, um, since we're, I'm starting to go down this path of like journalism and mm -hmm. PR and communications. No, it's great. Thank you. Um, the stranger won't quote me anymore. Why do you think that is? It, you know, uh, so it's funny. It's, I mean, it's all conjecture. Um, I wrote, they have this thing. The Stranger's a peculiar outfit uh, because they're very, uh, they're very um, point of view. You know, that they, they kind mm -hmm. of have that journalistic uh, thread that says the reporter's writing from their own perspective. Mm -hmm. They're telling facts, but they're also kind of, they're also a persona themselves, the yeah, reporter. Yeah, which is unique to journalism. Right. right. And that there's certain journalism. Some journalism is supposed to be, I'm the objective guy exactly. in the hat with the little card mm -hmm. in it, just, just the facts man type of thing. And so The Stranger is a da an alt-daily, and they're writing, or an alt-weekly, alt-bi-weekly now. And and they, they do this thing called, um, at the end of the year, called uh, Tell Us What You Really Think or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, and so the idea is you're supposed to kind of criticize the, the stranger and say why you, you know, what, what, what did they get wrong? Regrets mm -hmm. issues, is what it's called. Uh -huh. And so they sort of solicit in a, a, these pieces of three to 500 words or whatever, kind of tell us what you think we sucked at last year or whatever. So I wrote it and I said, I think you <laughs> I'll guys, tell you. <laughs> yeah. I said, do you think you guys did a lousy job of covering, um, the whole, uh, what's called the grand bargain and the, housing affordability, livability agenda agreement, this big confab that the mayor had around housing, and it produced this really bad policy called mandatory inclusionary zoning. And I just sort of criticized them for not being more curious about why big business was in support of this and that smaller, medium-sized developers were not, and neighborhoods hate it, but downtown likes it, and sort of you know, they, they didn't seem to ask questions about the alignment of different interests for and against this deal. And I think that they, they're mad because I think they know they're wrong. They know that they've kind of made a mistake and they don't know how to back out of it in a way where they go, oops, you know what? This is not such a good thing because <laughs> they really committed to it. They really, in, 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 the, in an edit, the, the editorial that they put out is very much in favor of this deal, very mm -hmm. much believing that it's good for the city, good for growth and mm -hmm. housing, and good for nonprofit housing and good for affordability. And they're not alone. Um, the Times is the same way. So I, I would caution people that it depends on what you're doing. 
Um, but they still come to me when they need a point of view because I'm the only person representing this point of view. Except for the stranger. The stranger, you know, they still will, they'll still reach out to me if it's a particular issue. Um, but they try, they, they really don't want to give me any, any airtime because mm-hmm. I think they're just, they are, I, I, that's one place that I would say, I think that on a personal level, they, they've been very dismissive because they feel like, oh, he's just, he's just, don't listen to him. He's off to the side making noise about this deal and, and just don't, don't pay no attention to that guy. And, um, but is it because you don't agree with what they, what they're saying? Do you think that's why, or do you think that you've just simply offended them? <laughs> I think it's pride. I mean, I, I, you know, and and of course, I don't know what their point of view is because I'm not. I'm, you know, I send them things still. I still will let their reporters know. Hey, have you looked at this? Um, I do do it in a way where I'm sort of like, hello, you know, have you seen this? You know, mm-hmm. how can you not? be interested in um but you know i think there comes a point when um you kind of recognize that they're moving in a different direction and they're just not going to report your side of the story and i think that journalism can be that way Mm-hmm. Well, there's been times in Portland where we've not given press releases to specific media outlets, and I won't say who, but somebody who kind of takes an unbalanced approach to journalism. Mm-hmm. So we're going to just not send you press releases for the whole summer for all the clients <laughs> because we don't play that way. Is mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in another firm that I worked at, that's what what happened. Yeah, and I think that for me, the guiding principle is it depends on who your your client if you have a client. There's two, I think, two distinctions. If you're if you're working for a client, um, you would not do what I do because because your relationship with the reporter is a professional relationship between me, Roger Valdez, and my company or my firm or whoever, and that reporter mm-hmm. and as a reporter as a profession, and then in the background their paper. Mm-hmm. I want to keep that relationship really good if I'm in the profession of public relations mm-hmm. because I'm going to have a client that's selling diapers, one that's selling beer, one mm-hmm. that's selling whatever. And there may be an issue where that paper decides to go after one of my clients, but they're not going after the other ones. Mm-hmm. So I need to deci- I need to decide, you know, I need to keep it at a certain point where it's like I'm giving advice to the client saying, well, maybe you shouldn't have said that or here's how you'd say it or if they call about the latest, you know, gotcha thing, here's how we're going to handle it, but I'm not going to I'm not going to complain about the reporter unless I guess they do something that I consider unprofessional. Um, and that's a weird line. I mean, and, and, but you, mm-hmm. you get sensitive to it where you kind of go, you know, that wasn't cool. And you know what? I think I did that like two weeks ago mm-hmm. because when I am representing a nonprofit, mm-hmm. there are some needs mm-hmm. <laughs> that I have. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of did that. And that's that. And that, but that right. has to do, that's actually, has, it has to do with the Dunaway Home Tour. So that's a, that's a side project, mm-hmm. which is a volunteer job that I do for my kids' school, mm-hmm. but it ha- has to do with homes. Mm-hmm. And when the local neighborhood paper is not going to cover the home tour in advance of the home tour, when all the proceeds benefit the school, and that that's weird. And that's an advocacy thing. So that's where, because and this is the difference between me and a lobbyist. They often call me a lobbyist. If I was a lobbyist, I... I would put on the hat of more housing for everybody when I talk to a reporter, and then I would take it off, and then I'd go do my other other client work. Um, If you're an advocate, it's very, very different because you're in it for the long haul. You're in it for the mission. And so if it's a much more contentious, much more... um, smash and grab kind of, of, of world when you're an advocate because if a story's really bad, there's a moral or ethical principle at heart 
or someone's going to get hurt because of that. Mm-hmm. So that's very different than a client who's paying you to get a nice story in the bottom of the fold of the Sunday mm-hmm. paper as opposed to the story that was written is making things worse for the overall cause of children or you know people of color or renters or whatever. Yeah, that and, makes sense. Yeah, and so it's a real to me it's a distinction that's that's that I try to follow and 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 my PR colleagues people that I know that work in the field of communications would be like, "Oh man, you shouldn't write the editor and complain about a story um, or a reporter and complain about a story. And worse, you shouldn't have others say, call that reporter up and tell him <laughs> that that was horrible. Um, but I, I think that that's something you have to do as an advocate because what you're trying to do is you look at the reporter and the elected official as people with power who you got to sort of get under their skin and make them think differently. You're trying to change the way they think. When you're working for a client, um, you just want that professional person to get what they need so that they, they do what it is their job is to do, which is to write a story about whatever your issue is. And you give them as many facts as you can, and then they call it like they see it, and then you move on. And In a way, I mean, so if a client, let's say, sells houses then they are very attached to what the public thinks the real estate market is like. Mm-hmm. And so we are attached to the reporters and how they view the market and how they report on it. Because mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. what you're saying, that affects buyer and seller sentiment. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's all interesting. But, but if I get under the skin of the people at The Stranger and annoy them about you know my issues with this policy and they're irritated... And there's a project somewhere that's under assault from the neighborhood uh, design review. They're not going to associate that project with me. They're going to go, well, Roger's just Roger, kind of mm-hmm, making noise. Totally. But that project over there, they're going to look at it and go, well, who's the developer? And the, they, so, mm-hmm. so the the upside of being an advocate with a broad-based nonprofit organization is that. People can support you, and they can give you funding, and they can say, we support that organization. But if that organization takes on a controversial issue, you can always say, well, you know, all we did is we, we just supported them with funding. We're not. That's not our issue. We're not in that part of town or whatever. So it's a kind of a, it's a way of supporting a broader, you know, funders can support a broader cause um, while at the same time not getting caught up in the details of a particular part of that fight. And so, you know, I, I think that's the advantage of the way we set up our organization is that we're broad-based advocacy for, on behalf of builders and producers of housing and people that operate housing, but not a particular individual. Like, I'm not working for one developer. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll help individuals. We'll, you know, if people come, we'll, we'll, we'll say, that's a great project or, you know, so, but you are a nonprofit then, so, we are and a then do you get um, donations from developers? We do, yeah. Um, we get a lot of help from the Master Builders Association and from smaller individual builders that give you know thousand dollar checks, and and um, and you know our folks are busy and they're busy doing their projects, and so they don't really have time to get into the philosophical, broad policy issue discussions, and they also are you know, creating a product that's got a deliverable they have to do. And so I think that for, for them, the value of an advocacy organization is that I can go places and do things and say things broadly on their behalf so they don't have to. You know, they don't mm-hmm. have to spend a bunch of time thinking about the latest council legislation. Well, and they might not have the connections as well. Yeah, and, and they, may also, they may also not be really that affected by it, um, or they might be affected by it a lot, but... They just don't have the bandwidth to go down there and spend a lot of time on Well, that. yeah. Now, I'm also wondering how or why are you a housing advocate? How did that happen? Well, it, I came out of uh, an academic career when I was about 22 and 23, and I got into politics. And then I got active in my own neighborhood in Beacon Hill, which is in the south side of the city. And then... Um, Got involved in neighborhood planning, and I, I really got into sort of um, cities and the dynamic of cities and, 
in the design of cities and urban planning and architecture and um, all things city, you know, all things urban. And that was kind of in the 90s. And throughout the last 20 years, I've always had that interest. And whether it was when I was a neighborhood development manager at the city of Seattle, um, trying to make neighborhood plans come, come true for neighborhoods, um, or when I was in public health, looking at how the built environment played into uh, the role of people's health. Um, you know, I've always had this kind of interest in cities. And I, when I worked at, um, when, the, when climate change has, you know, became much more of a urgent issue, um, I, I started looking at the dimensions of cities. And to me, there was the climate change benefit. You know, there was less emissions in cities per capita. Um, it, it was more efficient in terms of energy use. Um, it, it was better for transportation because everybody's in one spot. You don't have to drive all over the place to get places. It's all, all the, everything you need is in the city. And then I sort of started realizing there's this kind of human aspect, this kind of um, uh, spiritual aspect to it too, which is it forces us to confront things we don't want to confront. Poverty, homelessness, crime, um, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of people that have a lot of money, people that have no money at all, and stirs us all up. Um, there was a student at, a, at the Washington State University Art School of Architecture. They did a studio, and she called it um, social collisions. And I, I love that phrase because I think what cities do is they force people together in sometimes an uncomfortable way. And I think when that discomfort when you hit that discomfort, that's an indication that something positive is happening because you're in, your, you're in a zone where you're learning something new. Whether it's, I don't like those people because of what they believe or the, where they came from or I'm suspicious of them. Suddenly you're now in a place where you're going, wow, why do I feel that way? And it pushes back on yourself. And so I think the only way we can make that available to more people is to build a lot more housing. And, and, it, and it, it's, it's something that's peculiar that we got caught up in the affordability part of that. Um, it's, it's unfortunate because it's really the most silliest part of the whole discussion. Is, so are people saying more housing will create less affordability? There is a, um, a belief out there. Um, I, I call it the, the Galileo effect, um, which is, you know, Copernicus did the math and he said, you know what, the math makes more sense if the Earth's going around the sun, not the sun going around the Earth. And everyone said, shut up, Copernicus, like, that doesn't make any sense. And then Galileo got his telescope and sort of said, you know, Copernicus was right. And the Catholic Church sort of said, Galileo, I don't feel anything moving, you know, I, I, everything <laughs> seems to be standing pretty still. And when I get up in the morning, the sun moves in the sky, so mm -hmm. does the moon. <laughs> And, and you just can imagine all that going, come on, guys. It's just... So people's experience of planet Earth is that it's not moving. We know otherwise now, and the vast, you know, some number of people believe that that's the case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when it comes to housing, people look at it and they go, I just walked by a new house and it was $600,000. I went by an apartment and I, I got the flyer and it was $2,500 for a one-bedroom apartment. This new housing is luxury housing. It's not, it's not making things more affordable. And so you, you kind of go, no. The new housing, like a new sweater or a new car or a new pair of shoes, is more expensive than an old sweater or an old car mm -hmm. or an old pair of shoes. So there's this, what Mike Scott calls the skew of the new. He's a real estate um, expert. New stuff's more expensive. Mm -hmm. But that new stuff enables people that have the money for that to spend their money there rather than bidding up the cost of existing affordable, more affordable housing that's cheaper. So and then they're, they're freeing up their old right, housing. Right. So they're, so they're not competing for, uh, you know, a tiny studio apartment for $500 in an old brick, brick building, and they can outbid the person that's living there, right? That person can pay $500. If I'm wealthier, I can say... I'll give you six fifty for that unit, and and again those trend, the, that thing that we talked about about who sets the price, that's the market force because what happens is if you have scarcity, 
and you have a, you have a person living in an older, cheaper, rundown unit, and there's no other units available, the pressure for that landlord to to boost the price of that to the point where, when that individual moves out, that unit is now going to be eight hundred dollars because someone's can is willing to pay that. Mm-hmm. So. Um, that's the real danger of that way of thinking about about things is, you know, the world is going around the sun and it's spinning. And even though it doesn't feel like new housing is making things better, even though it appears as though it's more expensive, and even though uh, it's inconvenient and annoying and it creates some minor inconvenience for you, in the long run, if we build a lot more, even if it's more expensive, you're... you're you know, now, in the longer run, you're going to see the market adjust as you described, and you're going to see things rationalize, and you're going to feed, you're going to prices will moderate and come down, and the problem will be you know mostly solved. Um, if you make, if you're poor, housing is going to be a problem. So is food. So is up transportation. So is everything else. It affects because, everything. Right, because you have less money to spend as a proportion of your income on everything. So what we need to do, if we're going to create that opportunity for people to live in a city and experience that connection, that I talk, like those collisions, um, and that opportunity to evolve and become better people, we need to make room for them. You know, you gotta make more room at the table. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up and I always use the, you know, there's 20 people coming for dinner and two more show up you don't slam the door in the face. You pull up a couple chairs and you make room at the table and that's what we do. But can you make room for lower income people in Seattle? I think so. I think we can even, you know, uh, there's a great program that um, that we're working with now called Weld Seattle, which is a, uh, um, it's a program that takes people that are coming out of the prison system who have, of course, Ter- terrible credit, they have a criminal record, and they have no job history in the last three or four years because they've been in jail. And so they're, they're, the deck is stacked against them. You know, so they come out to look for a job, oh, you have a record, can't do it. They look for a place to live, they get turned down because they've got a record. They have no credit, they have no history of tenancy. Like, well, how come you haven't been, you have no tenancy for the last five years? Well, because my address was, um, you know, Monroe Correctional well, Facility. Yeah. yeah. So it, that part, the program takes those individuals, puts them in vacant housing that we're that our guys are preparing to tear down to build townhouses or whatever, and that's vacant housing that would otherwise be just falling down, squatters, you know, rats, whatever. These individuals move into it, take care of the house, you know, fix it up, live in it. Then they get trained by 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 um, a company called Square Peg to work in the contracting construction field. So they get a job. So they get a place to live, a tenancy record. They get experience, um, you know, getting their licensure back if they were in the business before. They get a good job recommendation in the business, and their earning potential goes up. They've got someone to vouch for them, and they're back in the world of with ordinary life. Mm-hmm. And if we, and I believe that Seattle could. I would love if we made it a goal that every person that released from every correctional facility in the state of Washington would come directly to Seattle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll find a place for you to live, we'll get you a job, and we'll get you back on track because that is human capital that gets wasted because a person comes out of that situation and we say, here's a barrier, here's a barrier, here's a barrier, here's another mm-hmm. barrier, here's another barrier. You get caught with a can of beer in your apartment and you go back to jail. Uh-huh. You're in the car with someone who has a gun. You go back to jail. And then the, the reality is, well, then why would I try so hard? Why would I get a job at What's Jimmy? What's the point? Right. Why get a job at Jimmy John's or at Subway or delivering food when I can go out and do a couple of crimes, make more money in, in two hours than I'd make in, a, in six months, one of these crappy jobs, and... I'm going to go back to jail anyway. And mm-hmm. and so the dispirited people that come out of that system, we basically tell them, you're just going to go back because we're not going to make it easy for you. And I think I think that the city of Seattle can make a commitment to do that. If we 
were thoughtful and allowed the market to mm -hmm. produce these kinds of solutions. No one mandated well to do this. No one ordered them to provide housing for people coming out of the system. No one said, give them a training opportunity. They did it because they need labor, because labor is short supply. They did it because they needed, we needed somebody to, to take care of those houses so they didn't become uh, vectors of crime and, 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 uh, and hazards. And suddenly you've got you know, two problems that we've solved, plus we solved the social issue, which is people coming out of jail and reoffending. Mm -hmm. And it's like, and nobody ordered that or you know, find anybody or threatened anyone. Mm -hmm. So are you, you guys are working with that? Yeah, is that what they, you're... They, they, they are. Um, a lot of our members um, are giving them, donating the houses. Wow, um, that's cool. Yeah, it's, and, and it's so amazing. I'm like, yeah, and so I'm like, look at this. I'm pointing to this and saying to this, look, you know, to people in the city and to advocates for the poor and to people coming out of jail, I'm saying this isn't about rich versus poor. It's not about haves and have-nots. It's about allowing human beings to solve problems with innovation and allowing price and allowing things like labor, you know, the need for labor to drive that need. I, I committed a crime. I did work in the construction industry. I've been out of, out of the system for five years. My license has expired. Now I can come back, work with wealth. My labor switched on. I'm probably going to charge less for that labor because, you know, of, mm -hmm. of, because I'm offsetting it with the benefits I'm getting from the house. So I, so as a as a business owner, I get labor that's a little bit less expensive. I'm training that labor that's going to be loyal to me and my company. That person gets a job. Yeah, they've got a good track record. It's like it it, it works. So did you write about this for Forbes? Yeah, because you write a lot for Forbes. So how often are you writing for Forbes? I write for them about two times a month. Um, it, it looked like you were doing like at least once a week or every other day I would or like, something. I would like to do once a week. It's hard to write. I mean. So how did you get involved with Forbes? Um, I met a guy named uh, Alex uh, Berzow, uh, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He used to write for Real Clear Politics, Real, Real Clear Science. And he suggested that I get in touch with their editor. And I think they had a kind of a gap in their housing economics kind of lineup. And so they offered me the position to do that. It's voluntary. I think I don't get paid for it. Yeah, but it's fine. I mean, you're getting kind of your advocacy out there. Yeah, it's a really nice platform. Um, I think it's a great opportunity to, to get some more national interest in what's going on here in Seattle. Um, I've done writing about about Utah, about Boston, and about um, um, other parts of the country. For Forbes? Yeah. Just, oh, okay. Because it says Seattle, I think, maybe in your byline, but maybe yeah, not. Yeah. I, but I you'll mean, still write. So you will write out of Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, when I've traveled, I try to write about where I'm going, kind of check out things in the, in the housing world in other parts of the country. Because mm -hmm, um, you can learn a lot from other parts oh, of yeah, the country. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And so... So, I mean, that's... So you don't have to... You don't pay to be... Part no. of Forbes. Uh -uh. So that's another thing. I mean, people will actually pay for that. So that's amazing <laughs> that you get well, to they're do that very, free. They're, they have a very strong, um, you know, ethic in their editorial content that they're very clear that this is not. Uh, it's a voice. It, it it is a point of view. It's an opinion. Um, it's an opinion piece. So it, so they're not. They're not expecting you to write journalism, but they're also they do not want to corrupt their platform with people that are doing commercials so it's sort of like you, it's not about selling a product it's more like um well it's very pr -y. yeah I, I mean we can't write commercials and press releases too so right get it. right and and then like i write you know i try to write three times at least three times a week for our blog um and then i write for the master builders uh, magazine and then i'll write for other things as time goes so you know whatever's needed so for your the Forbes pieces, you can't put those on your blog as well, can you? They want um, to save it for Forbes. No, yeah, they they don't. Yeah, they want you to do exclusive content. I mean, I will point to my stuff, like I'll I'll put stuff on Forbes, and then I'll I will write something related, and then I'll link back to that. So know? and then, do you have a quota of an amount of articles you're supposed to provide them? They they want at least two a month. This is really cool. I mean, how do I get one of those posts? 
you know, I don't, it's, you have to be, you have to have an opinion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, I think that they, you know, I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know how they've structured all of that. And I think it's a great opportunity. And, um, I, I also kind of look at it and say, well, you know, there are so many voices and so many opportunities out there. Um, when I started in all of this business 25 years ago, I remember, you know, we used to pitch stories to, um, we'd pitch stories to so-and-so at the Seattle Times and you'd send a press release or mm-hmm. you would do an event, you know, and you would go out and people mm-hmm. at the Times and the PI and like the Seattle Weekly and the Stranger and a couple of TVs and maybe the NPR affiliate and you know, six or seven people there and that was great, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's just um, the the world is so the, the news cycle doesn't exist anymore. It's it's all, it's not a cycle anymore. It's just a, a constant like waterfall of information. And so there's so many platforms out there and so many different niche markets and readerships and um, so that now like when I'm on the other side and I pitch things. I might pitch something to somebody that writes a blog. I might pitch something to a newspaper. I might pitch something to a radio station, a call-in radio station. How often do you get pitches as a Forbes writer now? Not too often. Occasionally, I should take that back. What's funny is once you're a writer on there, you get you get on a... I get probably five, six, seven, at least a day um, PR firms that send me releases and are they at least about real estate no a lot a lot of them are like you know this magician is appearing at this casino and blah 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 so Mm -hmm. because they're you know this junkie right and and what's but what's what i appreciate about all that um is that there are times where i get stuff in there like i'm talking to a woman um monday on the phone in north carolina who runs a program to um, help people coming out of the prison system become entrepreneurs. So I want to know about that because I want to write about that in the context of what we just talked about with Weld. And I want to try to bridge that kind of, I want to try to make that connection and say, well, here's what we're, here's what's going on with Weld. Um, what are you guys doing? Are there other programs like this in the country to kind of encourage that and to, you know, to get that word out there. But, but you know, I saw some, somebody sent me something in one of these seven or eight emails that I get. Um, so then really quick, cause we only have a yeah. couple minutes left. Um, is there anything that you're looking for right now from PR professionals, anything in particular for your work on Forbes? Well, I, I, I can give advice. Like one of the things that at least for me and from the kind of writing that I do, I get these pitches from PR firms like in Ohio and they'll say such and such. I got one about college students are living in microhousing, blah, 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 and like sort of pitching the microhousing angle. And it'll come from a PR firm, but embedded in, the, in their press release is reference to um, some actor in the world that's doing something. And I look at it and I go, well, I don't want to talk to the PR firm. I want to talk to that person. And I understand that they're sort of pitching the story, but I can't tell from the press release. It, it's confusing sometimes. Is this a press release and the PR firm is hyping the thing, or is this coming? Is the press is the P, is the press release coming from the thing, or which actor within the thing is the thing that the PR firm is pitching? Mm-hmm. So it, I kind of look at stuff and I go, well, who in the who's got the story that I want in here? Because I want to mm-hmm. I want to ask about microhousing. But I don't want to get pitched by the PR person, and I don't want to talk to the university president. I want to talk to the builder of the housing. So I think that if you really want to get a story placed, you have to call and you have to you have to pitch it and say, or you have to really tailor it and say, I want to. You know, you can't just be a broad release yeah. because it gets confusing. And if I have to do too much sleuthing to find it out. Yeah. So then do you quote other, well, you, I don't know that you would quote, but do you reference other companies or experts, let's say, in your articles on Forbes? Um, It depends. I mean, there's a, 
it, it has to sort of be relevant. Like everybody's different, and I, I don't, you know, I, a lot of these guys write differently than I do. But for me, I'm writing to essentially highlight a particular issue that I think is relevant broadly. And so if I get something, uh, for example, like I didn't get a pitch from this, but I, I don't know where I found it, but um, there, there was some work going on in Boston about homelessness and uh, around social impact bonds. And I think maybe I may have gotten a press release about that. Um, I wanted to, to highlight that because I was talking, I had been talking about Utah's program and I saw social impact bonds. We had been touting social impact bonds here in Seattle. It's an idea I've liked for a long, long time. And so when I saw that, it was like, yeah, I want to talk to those people. And if it's right, I'm going to I'm gonna refer back to what their project mm -hmm. is. And I spent time on the phone with one of the principals and really got to understand what they were doing. And then I wrote about it and I quoted him and stuff. So it's sort of, if it's the alignment's right, I'll run with it. But it yeah. has to sort of be like a... Well, it's kind of cool. I mean, now it also kind of gives you a little bit of clout when you're talking to the Seattle Times about their reporting. Because let's just leave it at that.